Today's program is part of a special series brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership with funding provided by ACES Aware. Together, we are working to raise awareness about the effects of adverse childhood experiences in hopes of building a healthier community and a brighter future for our children. Dr. B explains the importance of acknowledging our stressors of the past in order to thrive in the present. Plus, she shares practical tips for coping through challenging times and building greater resiliency so you and your family can enjoy healthier and more fulfilling life. Hi, you're listening to Delusional Optimism with Dr. B, where we explore human resiliency and learn how people thrive even after adversity. We break down the complexities of the human brain so concepts are simple and relatable. It's fun and empowering to understand how your earliest experiences influence your relationships today. What makes you tick? Dr. B is a speaker, trainer, and consultant who understands emotions and human development from the inside out. Let's dive into today's episode. Here's Dr. B. Hey everybody, it's Dr. B, and in today's episode, we're going to be talking about ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, but we're also going to be talking about middles. They're the age group that come after our littles, and they fall into the category of about 6 to 12 years old. If you're interested in furthering this conversation, email me at contact at drbconnections.com or check out my website at www.drbconnections.com. All right, let's get started. All right, we're back with Dr. B, and today we're talking about middles. Um, but before we get into that, uh, you went on a trip recently. Is that correct? I did, yes. Where'd you, I, where'd you go off to? I ran up to Bass Lake with some family, my wife and my uh, daughter and her husband, so my son-in-law and my granddaughter. We all stayed, we wow. stayed separately, but we at least got to do some outside adventuring together. It was wow. a lot of fun. What was your favorite moment? My favorite moment was actually, well, there are so many favorite moments. Um, (laughs) Just spending time with the group again was amazing. Mm. It was so fun to just be out and about and able to wander with my granddaughter, Charlie, and talk to Lisa and Matt and Lainey, all just, you know, free flow Mm. like we're were so used to and now has been so you know we've been in deprivation mode so we it was just fun to have normal conversations outside Mm. so oh my goodness yeah normalcy whoever thought it'd be (laughs) missed yeah and we went to the snow and played in the snow because we don't live in a snow place and so that was fun too all right so what do we need to know about uh middle schoolers Middles, they're they're middles, and what a middle is, I call them middles. They're middles, like okay. six year olds to twelve year olds, so they're kind of in mm. this period of life that we call latency. So they're they're like if you think of a window being wide open and just air blowing into it, that's what a middle is like. You know, mm. this is your opportunity as a parent. They've gone through all that infancy stuff. The roadways are are paved. Or, you know, we've talked about the highway building mm-hmm. in the early childhood parts of life. Now, uh, now information is really coming into their world as for the first time. 
and they're starting to learn so many new things and have so many opinions and ideas. And if you talk to a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, you know, they're just amazing at what they know and mm. what they're learning and how they think about things. They don't think about things the same way adults do. They have mm-hmm. a different perspective because they have less experience in the world. And it's really important to remember that a lot of the things that are happening for them are happening for the first time ever where, you know, we've had a lot of experiences with things happening over and over again. So if they're excited, we need to join in that joy with them during this period because for them it's a first time middles are just pure and especially young girls they say young girls the window is wide open until age 10 like they're not influenced by the as much as when they hit early adolescence by the negativity of all the commercialism of being a beautiful woman and body image and all of those things. So everything that you want a girl to know as a parent or as a mentor, you want to be talking to them about that before Mm. they're 10. And so that's really cool. I mean, it's true for boys too. Mm -hmm. So, but particularly because we have such an industry that exploits young women We Mm -hmm. really want to get those messages into girls' brains before the window closes and doesn't reopen again until they're in their 20s. Yeah, wow. Why is there uh, such a range, like 6 to 12? I mean, we've been doing like smaller increments up to now. Why is 6 to 12 such a large window? Because we've sort of, remember, 80% of brain development, the infrastructure of the brain has, has now been built by six, you know, really by even earlier than six, really around three, 80% of that infrastructure has been built. And now we're adding information in and kids are starting to learn more of a, you know, about life that gets put onto the roadways Mm. in terms of, okay, now I'm going to learn how to read. Now I'm going to learn how to you know, right. And, and just making more association kinds of things rather than building the system. Mm -hmm. So that's why early childhood is so important. And we look at it in these little micro bits because that's when we're building infrastructure. So think of it as like building a computer, you're building the machine But then for a long period of time, you use that computer and you're adding information to it Mm -hmm. and it goes into the right places Mm. for later use. Or like you're you're coding from 6 to 12. You're coding Coding the programs, coding the, yeah, okay. That that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, very nice. It's kind of, yeah. I mean, I don't know a lot about the computer side of it, but that totally makes sense in terms of, yeah, it's it's the, the coding side, the information side the software yeah yeah the like, software side yeah the hardware side is the like from birth to five birth to six sure. something like that yeah okay, okay. Yeah. interesting and well. some of that can get tweaked you know like in a computer you can add storage or you can rewire mm, something mm-hmm. so that can happen across the lifespan however the major like it's not going to work if you just like turn over one wire 
Like right. you got to do yeah. the main thing at the beginning, the first. It becomes five. a lot more crowded and complicated the, yes. the later on you go. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes so. sense. So, are we just all computers? Are we like getting into <laughs> existential territory? <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, we want to be relatable, and so mm-hmm. because humans are so dynamic and we are social beings and actually we are so socially connected in so many ways to our devices and our computers that it's a really good association comparison but in real life we know that in order for computers to be human-like they need social and emotional skills Mm. and computers still do not have that People trump computers big time when it comes to emotion, perception. I mean, we're trying very hard in the AI world, but it's not necessarily, you know, it's not, you can't replicate a human in that Mm -hmm. department yet. You can, you can build something with a robot, but you can't, you can't uh, make them feel like a human yet. So... So no, we're not we're not humans. I mean, we're not robots or just computers yet. Yeah. We're still human and we're still human. we might get there someday. <laughs> so in this age range, what are what are the typical difficulties and and confusion points that parents may come up against during these ages? One of the biggest things that I notice all the time is that people see children between 6 and 12 as mini-me's or as little adults Mm. or as replicas of what they were like during the same time period when, you know, when they were a child at 6. Well, let's start with the world is so different from when I was 6 to my granddaughter today being 6. The world is just completely different. So I can't compare my six-year-old experience to her six-year-old experience. But what I can know is that her experience is, I, wanna, I don't want to say immature because it's, it's normal, but she's, what we do is our brain is adaptable to the environment that we live in, in order to survive and in order to have loving relationships and exist as humans. So we have to have an adaptable brain. Well, this is the period where brain is taking in experiences from today's world, not my experience as a six-year-old. So that's not relative. I was on a walk yesterday, taking my dogs for a walk, and there was a family walking. There was probably about a four-year-old who was just cry, cry, crying in a stroller. Mm. And then there was maybe a six or seven-year-old pushing a bike. And first thing, and I don't want to be critical, but I see this happen all the time. One person, the woman in the group, said to the baby crying, and I say baby loosely, it was probably, she was probably four, said, why are you being such a crybaby? You know? Oh, no. Yeah. And and I get that parents can be frustrated by crying, but at the same time... It's a need and when, you know, and sometimes you just need to take the time because they're little and have so much less experience with the world mm-hmm. that we would get further in terms of resilience if we say, okay, let's just pause here on our walk and let me help you regulate with me. Let's just both mm-hmm. calm down for a minute because something's upsetting. Right, right. And then 
the man in the group, there were several adults, there were probably four adults. The, one of the men in the group said, you don't know how to ride a bike? How old are you? And mm. I didn't, you know, I was walking along, so I didn't hear, sure. I just noticed the age of the child. And I thought, okay, you know, knowing how to ride a bike a long time ago was such a different skill need than it's it true. is today. To huh. be total, I can't stand bike riding. Like, really? I can't stand bike riding. <laughs> Everyone is surprised that Dr. Okay. B does not want to be on a bike. We joke about putting me on a three-wheeler, but really the truth is I'm not so much afraid to ride a bike. I'm afraid of all the things that can happen on a bike. I'll mm. fall, and I don't want to fall on a bike, and it's bound to happen at some point. Sure. Or I'm afraid I'll get hit by a car or somebody will you know, run me off the road or something. Totally freaks me out. The highest on the list of why I never want to ride a bike is... I'm afraid of being chased by a dog. And I oh. and I'm the queen of dogs. I love dogs, but mm -hmm. I love my dogs and my dogs that are familiar to me, but I don't want to be chased by a dog. So the and the impracticality of my 6-year-old granddaughter riding her bicycle out in her front yard mm. is completely different than it was for me where I lived when I was 6 mm. or yeah. even where her parents lived you know, riding bikes, you know, it's like, I rode bikes a lot as a kid, all over the place. But then when my kids were little, they didn't ride bikes that much, because we were afraid to let them go riding their bikes wherever, you know, we were mm. much more, remember, Gen X, we're helicopter parents, <laughs> we yeah. bubble wrap them in. And, <laughs> and now my little Char Char, she is, she's six, and she's super interested in riding a bike. But you know, that requires riding a bike through the city, which isn't a super safe thing to do for a six-year-old. So things are different, and I think what parents need to recognize is that there are not many me's, even though they look a lot, they look so competent, mm. <laughs> and they're still so little. They're still yeah. so young and don't have the, the frontal cortex online for logical and rational thinking and understanding. So we pull them into things that aren't necessarily, they're not capable of understanding. So it's just, you're saying we pull them into uh, bigger expectations than what they are actually capable of understanding and engaging. We don't give them the opportunity to tell us and teach us what mm. their capacity is. Okay. We just make a lot of assumptions. And so what I guess I want to say is, Instead of making assumptions about what your child knows or doesn't know, be an investigator with them. Wonder mm. with them about what they're thinking and how they understand things to work. Because then that gives us the information to help parent them better because we then know what they're thinking and what they're asking. So I'll tell you a little story about Char Char, my, my granddaughter, and she's a little six and a half. And so we don't think kids know what they know. And then then we also, at the same time, we over expect them to know things that how in the world would they know anything about? Hmm. So it's really good to wonder with kids and invite them to tell us things in a safe way so we can clarify and clear things up. So as they're bringing in information, they have the ability to use it adaptively 
mm-hmm. when they need it. So Charlie was at my house pre-COVID swimming, and she said, hey, BB, you know, she's worrying and thinking about death and dying, obviously. This is on her mind, and she's a little bit of a gore queen for whatever reason. <laughs> <laughs> but she says to me, hey, BB, you want to see your worst nightmare? And I oh, said, Lord. huh, not really, yes. but okay, you got me. I'm curious. What's my worst nightmare? <laughs> and then she... <laughs> She she's literally learned to swim, you know, a year before. She floats face down in the swimming pool as if she has drowned. And I oh. and then she pops her head up and she's laughs and I said, "Are you kidding me? That is my worst nightmare. How did you know that's my worst nightmare? I can't that's why I'm sitting here watching you swim because that would be my worst nightmare mm-hmm. if you drowned." And she laughed from the tips of her toes to the top of her head. She thought that was so funny that she knew what would worry me and then begged me to send the video to her mom and dad to scare them. And I said, absolutely not. I am not (laughs) sending this to your mom and dad until I tell them it's your joke. And, you know, we've all gotten a laugh that, wow, that's a really... It's a really deep thought to know that people love you so much that their worst nightmare would be if something terrible happened to you. In her case, she's at the age where kids are really obsessed with death and dying, you know, five, six, seven, eight, even nine, ten, because we don't talk about it. We don't explain it because we also feel uncomfortable and don't understand how to talk about it. So we talk about it very abstractly. Mm -hmm. There's a really great book series I'll share with you. It's called A Kid's Book About. And in the A Kid's Book About, they talk about everything. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Rogers has taught us, the late Mr. Rogers, he said, if you can talk about it, then we can manage it. And so the beauty of this series, they're written by all different authors. This one's a book about a book about death. Okay, how do you talk to your six to 12 year olds about death? Yeah. Here's a kid's book about systemic racism. So I, I'm meeting with them to write a book called A Book About Resilience on Monday. So I'm oh, really- Oh, that's so exciting. I'm oh, so my excited, God. yeah. But it's because we can, and then there's a kid's book about failure, a kid's book about feminism, a kid's book about body image. It goes Mm -hmm. on and on. And different authors write about difficult topics for children and particularly middles because we need help as parents to talk about things that we don't know. Like, how do you talk about racism with a Mm seven-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old? Like or systemic racism or feminism. These are hard topics. And so we want to have avenues to open up dialogue, but a lot of times nobody ever gives parents that option or information. So this book series is amazing for parents and children to share together. I think it's great to share with adults. Like I've learned a lot just by reading this series of children's books as ways to talk to other parents about certain topics that are difficult to talk about. Anxiety yeah. in kids or depression. So middles middles are tricky, but they're amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I imagine I imagine being a parent 
when you're a parent of a middle, it requires you to search yourself a lot more than you're used to. Search for answers and language for things that you've just kind of forgotten about. Like, yeah. death is very strange. It, it, I mean, living is very strange, yeah. let alone death. But it also just makes me think of, um, on some level, like the, the ancient cultures that had more story around death and dying more ritual more things like that that we've just become isolated from because we're we're uncomfortable with the idea that we aren't going to be here and so we just want to just pretend it's not there and i think yeah creating creating better stories creating better rhythms and rituals for those difficult topics is is the way that we're going to be able to get back to some sense of groundedness around these subjects for sure Yeah, well, and that's so true in relation to COVID even more so, because now people are dying in the rituals that we, Mm. the very, you know, minimal rituals (laughs) that we had around death and dying are now pushed off to the side and not be, they're not able to be shared with family and friends the way they were pre-COVID. So Mm. yeah, yeah, you're right. And story is so important to middles because Mm -hmm. they have this their contextual memory is online now and so they can make associations about something that's happening and how somebody feels about it and then gives them the idea of oh i'm allowed to have a feeling about this too Mm -hmm. what do i think and feel about this yeah and and that's really important you don't do that when you're a toddler you don't do that when you're three or four that doesn't happen until you're a middle So Mm, it's that storing of information in a way that makes sense and is organized and you can pull for it later when you're 21 and need it again. I I have a friend and mentor teacher who her husband's brother died and Mm -hmm. they gathered outside. They took like five minutes and went onto this property and grabbed something that reminded them of this guy and then shared with the group and they they cried and they wept and it's something as simple mm-hmm. as that a, a kid can even do that right Absolutely. and that's a ritual that's going to be able to bring people together and acknowledge a death not escaping the yes. reality but but leaning into it and and yeah. learning to love it on some level love each yeah. other better right yeah. and looking at the idea that dying isn't only a taking away but it's it is the leaving of another person's soul and their mark which is what leave a life print really means on other all the people that someone has touched in their lives yeah. everybody leaves life prints they leave yeah. those life prints on the souls of all the people that they engage with you know good and bad in the mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. you know and say things to our children that, yes, I'm always going to be here with you in, in, you know, maybe not in body, but in spirit, you know, whatever that means to you, you know, whether it's in, you know, a religious context, a spiritual context or scientific context. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's, it's your way of saying, you know, I'm leaving stuff in with you because we have a relationship. So you are part of who I am, no matter what. So I think another, another um, difficult part of this age is rules. And how do we set up rules and boundaries and teach them when to and how to obey them and express their feelings around those things? So how would you suggest people go about 
setting up those sort of things. Okay. This is a great <laughs> this is a great topic for middles, but it also applies to adults later on in life because yeah, most definitely. <laughs> kids middles are really concrete in terms of how they think about certain things and particularly rules. And on the one hand, 6 to 12 year olds on the earlier end really just are about, you know, uh getting what's sort of fair you know, getting what I want, but it has to be kind of fair. So that's a really rule kind of oriented um, way of thinking. And then as we get into a little bit older childhood, it can shift a little to like interpersonal connection. Like I want to do what everybody else does and I want to do it right. Like I want to please my teacher. I want to please my parents. So I behave and follow the rules for that reason. So let's merge those two things together a little bit in this span and recognize that if you have a 10 year old, I used to teach fourth grade millions of moons ago. And so this is a classroom of 10 year olds. Okay, there is nobody more literal or serious about the rules than a 10 year old. Mm. And so I let my class make the rules, but I got to override their rules if I felt it necessary. And so what 10 year olds will do is they will, you know, send you to the electric chair if you break the rule on purpose, because (laughs) you should have known better. And we told you and we gave you a chance and you blew it. So you're done. Like they have no mercy. (laughs) They're like done with you. So in that sense, like there's very little flexibility in their thinking about this is right and this is wrong. Yeah. And where we come in, we're sort of the fluid in between as adults, and we give them the ability to smooth out those edges and say, yeah, well, maybe that's, maybe that is right or wrong, but what if the situation changed? And again, rather than giving them a laundry list of all the things that are right and wrong, we can help them think about a system. Now, the problem with this is that a lot of times adults aren't good at this either. Right. So we have to teach adults too, and sometimes we have to backtrack with adults and say, let's learn this together, that sometimes you can't follow the rules because the rules don't make sense or the rules aren't good for everyone or the rules aren't good for a certain situation. And so it's okay to adapt a rule, but you have to be careful about it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a tricky, tricky thing, but we don't want kids to grow up and be so stuck in the black and white of a rule that it ends up being harmful to other people. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use COVID-19 again, vaccines as an example, as a, I mean, this is a risky thing for me to talk about personally, but at the same time, I feel like I'm old enough. I'm a leader in this field and I feel like it's important to say the rules need to meet the goal. And the goal is to get people vaccinated because when we have people vaccinated, then we have people protecting other people from Mm COVID-19. So if the rule prevents somebody from getting vaccinated, but then that vaccine is going to end up in the garbage, how is that rule effective or a Mm. good situation? Now, We didn't come on to COVID-19 and vaccine and all of that in the most efficient way because it's an emergency. My stance on this is, you know, there's a lot of conversation about don't jump the line. Don't, you know, take somebody else's spot. And I would say, okay, 
I'm totally allowed to get a vaccine because I am a healthcare provider who does not see patients. That allows me to get a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't help my friend who's African American and drives an Amazon truck at all because they won't let me give him my vaccine. But he should have the vaccine before me because he's the one who's in contact with more people than I am. Right. So the rule doesn't make sense. But I shouldn't give my vaccine up because he can't get a vaccine yet. What I need to do is then say, hey, we're going to get you a vaccine. I see you as a healthcare provider, but, you know, we're going to all of our jobs are to help other people who want to get a vaccine to get a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Not stop ourselves from getting vaccines in order to let everybody go in front of you because in my case there was nobody lining up for the vaccine. The vaccines were going to go into the garbage if somebody didn't show up to get them. Yeah. So that's one of those places where it feels a little terrible to bend the rules a little bit for other people. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's for the the greater good in the long run. Mm. And this is what we're we're setting middles up for is having that flexibility in their brain to negotiate the black and the white to mm. having some gray zones. Like, oh yeah, it is okay to, you know what? If you're starving and your children are starving, is it okay to take a loaf of bread? Right. We all have to decide that. It's a moral dilemma. But Does that mean looting is okay? No, it doesn't mean looting is okay. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of complex things that happen in humanity that are okay to talk to kids about. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I was just having this conversation with a friend as well of like structures and rules, so important. But you really have to look at like what you're saying is like, what is the fruit of the structures and these rules? And if if the structures and rules are not giving you the fruit that you want, then maybe that we need to change the structure and the rules. Right. And and that's really difficult. And especially, I mean, just there's so many variables. And of course, the rules are not going to cover every single variant of person. And so that so you just kind of have to slap on it and be like, well, this is this is makes the most sense to cover the most ground, perhaps. But I'm sure people are going to be left out. I'm sure people are going to be missed. Yeah, you have to, obviously, you have to make that personal decision. And obviously, don't go against your conscience. But is, is, the, is the goal, is the fruit that is coming out of this structure or this, or this rule, is it actually serving what you're wanting? Being okay with other people not agreeing. That's the first mm. thing. Because yeah, that yeah, yeah. makes us feel really uncomfortable. And so... That's one of the things from for middles is they're very socially driven by what other mm-hmm. people think. So we can help them to be their have their own voice when they follow their own compass that's guided by a right and wrong system that has positive benefits for yeah. the most people. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the way I like to put it is sure we can all go take advantage of all kinds of systems. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that's what loopholes are, taking advantage of the system. Sometimes it's really helpful. I, mean, I don't want to say take advantage of a system, but to utilize a system in a way that makes sense for the benefit of the most people. Because the system is not human. It's like asking the computer to say, oh, wait, 
do you think this person should have a vaccine or do you think this person should have food? Oh, no, because that is wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, Mm -hmm. then what are we left with? We we don't want to leave that to the computer. So sometimes we have to think the system Mm -hmm. is more like a computer than it is like a human. We need to stay true to our humanity and our humanness. And that's where the road gets gray. Mm -hmm. That's why we have this like, you know, from black to white, there's gray in the middle. And we navigate that with our values, our ethics, our morality. And that comes from conversations that we have with our our elders, our people who we trust, love, and are wise. Yeah, and I think the... Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's more when you're when you're working with these with these kids, it's less about teaching them how to follow the exact correct rules at all times and more about the ground underneath the structures. How do you know what the ground underneath the structure is and and sometimes you need to tear that structure down, but as long as you know that the that the ground what the ground is and what the ground is standing for that's a much more flexible concept that is it's allowed to shift and change but if you know like the core root of we're trying to take care of people how do we best take care of people and then let that let the structure emerge from that again if if the original wasn't working i think that's a beautiful way to talk about that because we are in a period in our history where we're doing a lot of talking about breaking down systems and structures that are not working for us anymore. I mean, whether they ever worked for everyone is pretty much a no. We know that. And what COVID has done is illuminated the discrimination, the racism, and the disparity in so many situations. So now we are at this weird crossroads, this very difficult crossroads of needing to break down systems And at the same time, we don't necessarily know how to do that in ways without breaking the rules. Right. Right. So we have to find our courage Mm -hmm. and our confidence and say, you know what? Yeah, sometimes you have to yeah, you have to bend so you don't break. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what we know is that Middles are very much looking for this tight structure of rules so they know what to do and how things work. And that's important for them. So we don't want to get all philosophical on middles because their brain isn't online to work with that. (laughs) However, we do want to start talking to them about how to make decisions about things that are a little bit blurry Mm -hmm. because that then helps them to put that in their contextual memory system to use for later when it becomes really necessary like do I help somebody or do I not because I'm scared or do I you know like all these things that come up so middles need a lot of structure and a lot of boundaries and they need us to protect them because they don't have the capacity for that but they also need us to be flexible because that fuels and feeds their flexible thinking later on Mm-hmm. So we really have to step into our parenting role here and be not the do as I just do it because I said so, but mm-hmm. here's what here's how I think about it. Let's talk about how you could think about it. 
we're really building and, and tensing and releasing the muscle of the brain that gives us the ideas of, you know, how to be a flexible thinker and right. a smart thinker all at the same time. So along the lines of these, uh, of rules and, and knowing how to help a child of that age know where the flexibility is and how to handle that flexibility, what, what would be your advice to that? That's a great, a great point, because what I see in the world around where people get hung up and stuck is that we get so worried that the rules are followed exactly that we forget that the world is constantly changing all the time. So what we need to talk to kids about is the confusion that happens when things are different under similar circumstances. And what do we do with that confusion? Oh, that's different than trying to create a world that's completely identical Legoland at everybody yeah. else's house. You know, my house is totally different for my granddaughter when she's visiting me than her own house is. Because I don't have to, you know, be the strict rule parent anymore. Right. So that's, that's what we need to do is be able to talk to kids about their confusion about different situations to build their flexibility rather than spend our whole lives trying to create all these exact identical circumstances and situations for them to mm-hmm. navigate through it, everybody's house and make everybody do it all the same. Yeah. Yeah. Th- I mean, this is the, uh, the similar concept of unity, not uniformity. Unity, not uniformity. Absolutely. What nice words to use with children mm. that, you know, because we're naturally we we are adaptable like that is the nature of our survival is that we can adapt to our environment exactly so we have to be we have to be united which means shiftable and changeable rather than continuously uniform if we were all exactly the same thing we'd be out yeah exactly (laughs) we'd be done All right, so there's obviously so many hurdles, it sounds like, in parenting middles. Where, where's the point of resilience and optimism here? I'm always optimistic when I get to just share about these things. And, and I can see the resilience in so many positive experiences that children in middles have. And when we have conversations with middles we're building their resilience that is what it is we're teaching them to think about them we're giving them the idea about the future and hope and ideas Mm -hmm. and that's a way of building resilience into another human being so when we want to be parent for resilience then we are communicators with children at their level Mm -hmm. so that's true across the board That's really true across every relationship that we have. But since we're building resilience in childhood, it's important to talk about the things like Mr. Rogers said that feel like they're unmanageable, but as soon as we bring them out into the open, we can manage it. So that's that's why I'm optimistic and and believe that this is gonna lead to more resiliency in our whole world and community, or our communities and the world, because we are starting to have really difficult conversations about things that feel highly, highly unmanageable. 
Like we've just had a conversation about breaking down systems that have been in existence for <laughs> hundreds of years right? and literally rebuilding them. That can be scary, but it's also important and necessary in a lot of circumstances. So how do we do it? Mm. What do we do? And, you know, how do we do it in a way that serves everybody, not just a particular group of people, right. whatever that group of people is. So let's talk about a few actionable takeaways. One is, remember, we've taken the, we've built the infrastructure in the first five years-ish of life, and now we're six to 12, and we're building the adaptive and information system in a child's brain. So they're taking in all this information, and our job is to really engage with them and talk to them about it so they get help storing it into the right places in their brain so that it's accessible and usable later in their lives. Predictability, consistency, equal stability. And so we can use that idea across the lifespan, but for this group in particular, when we create predictable, consistent ways of thinking, then we lead children into stable thinking, Mm -hmm. which then also later turns into certainly feeling you know, the importance of right and wrong, but also the flexibility to dance along the lines when it's necessary for a bigger benefit. Right. So children are not mini-me's. That is a big takeaway. They do not have their frontal lobes online, and their experience of being any particular age as their parent is totally different now and not necessarily applicable to a child's life today. So like I said, me being six is not anything like my granddaughter or even my children being six. It's just a different world. So we can't apply the, oh, this happened to me when I was six and I did this. Well, it was different. So that doesn't, it's not helpful and it doesn't (laughs) apply. So the back in my day line just doesn't work. Walking Walk uphill, both <laughs> yeah. uphill both ways. Yeah, yeah. Uphill both ways. Yeah, no. No, no, no. It does not work. So, you know, we're coming in, thinking about the long game here. We're always thinking about the long game. You got six to 12-year-olds, and we want to get them through into their adult life. And what do we want them to be like? We want them to be thinkers, and we want them to be feelers, and we want them to be doers. Mm. How do we do that? We think with them. We do with them and we feel with them because then they learn how to do that as well. And then they're going to do it in their variety, you know, in their way with their own spice and, you know, seasoning. Yeah. (laughs) So which and learning to accept that is beautiful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's wonderful. Well, any parting words, Dr. B? Oh, no, just hit out there and go leave a life print however that works for you so until next time thanks so much for listening to today's episode i appreciate the opportunity to connect with you if you're interested in booking a training i'd love to hear from you you can reach me at my website dr b connections there's a big button that says book a training with dr b it's that easy If this show has been beneficial for you, please share it with your friends and family. Spreading the word about the show helps us grow our audience and helps continue to change the world together. Again, thanks so much for listening to Delusional Optimism. 
Now, go leave a life print. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Delusional Optimism brought to you by St. Agnes Medical Center and Every Neighborhood Partnership. We hope you're encouraged by Dr. B's message and find her tips helpful for managing life stressors and building a more resilient self. For more episodes in this special series, please visit St. Agnes Medical Center's website at www.samc.com. This episode is produced and published by the editing team at TruthWork Media. TruthWork Media is a full-fledged podcasting and social media agency located in South Bend, Indiana, with clients all around the world. For more information, visit them at truthworkmedia.com. These materials and all discussions of these materials are for educational purposes only and do not constitute medical or mental health advice. The presenter is not a licensed mental health or medical service provider. If you need medical or mental health care or advice, you should contact your doctor or therapist, or you can contact your insurance company for a referral. This show and all of its contents are copyright 2020 Dr. B. Leave a Life Print. Reproduction or use requires written consent of Dr. Kristen Beasley.